0: Hi, this is Judy Rodman, and my guests today for All Things Vocal are a couple of the busiest primetime music creators in New York City. That is JP and Catherine Rayo Rendy. This is part one of my interview with the Rendys. Subscribe because you're not going to want to miss part two. Kat and JP grew up in New York. They met at SUNY Purchase College, where they graduated with degrees in musical composition and music production. Kat was an artist herself and had been studying jazz and recording with legendary songwriters Carole King, Sturkin and & Rogers, and Paul Williams. She worked singing backup for Alicia Keys, Kasha, My Chemical Romance, The Tonight Show starring Jimmy Fallon, and Late Night with Seth Meyers. She also was pitching pop and R&B songs and doing vocal production for pop artists like Joss Stone. JP was in a punk band and had a publishing deal developing artists of his own. JP and Kat ended up marrying their musical styles and each other, and in 2008, they started their career together writing for Sesame Street. Since then, they've been composing for shows and artists, vocal producing artists and actors, and producing music and underscore, making a career doing what they love. Their goal is to bring legit, radio-ready music to kids of all ages, especially their two little ones, Ella and Ben. So, welcome to All Things Vocal, JP and Catherine Rail rendy
1: Thank you for having us.
0: It's <laughs> Awesome. Listen, it's amazing your career so far, and you're just getting started. You're in New York. You obviously have found some very special compatibility with each other. Do you guys remember the first music that you made together?
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, can I take this one? (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we met in Purchase Conservatory Music, and Kat was known as like the most amazing singer on campus. So All of us, we called ourselves studio rats, would write our songs and we wanted to hire Kat to sing our demos. So that's how Kat and I first met. And after a bunch of sessions and just kind of getting to know each other, we just kind of developed a, a relationship, you know, just musically. And I believe our first song or music together is some dude called Kat up. Was like, he was starting some publishing deals, something, but it was, it was illegitimate. So he was taking advantage of young writers and, and producers. <laughs> he really was. And I won't mention his, well, name I remember his name. But Kat was like, so this guy wants to pay us, I think it was like $300 yeah. like to write a song, but he's going to own the whole thing. And do you <laughs> want to do it with me? Now we're in college and we're like $300. Okay. Awesome. And I think, what was a middle-aged Middle dancing,
0: queen? dancing queen?
1: <laughs> they told us that's what they wanted. It was about a stay-at-home mom, kind of sick of just doing dishes and stuff, and wanted to go back to her dancing roots. So they were like, "We need a song called that." And I think that was our first one, right, Cat? That
2: was the first song that we collaborated on for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it went from there,
0: yeah, all up from there, yeah. Uh,
1: it it wasn't a hit. I just
0: want to say <laughs> it never uh, went to top 40. Well, and then you went from there to now having a full service music production company called Earworm Music. Oh, I love that. Tell me a little bit about the history of how you guys started that.
2: When we started writing together, we were also writing with other people, and we found that our best work was with one another. So we kept going, and when we found that a song came to me for Sesame Street, um, it was our first song ever. I, we had I had met the person who was playing Elmo at the time, and he called me to do this song for a toy, and this person. Kevin was so like, you would talk to him, meet him. And then like a week later, he would give you something that you're like, do I even deserve this? Because we were so young at the time, but he's like, you're the right person for the job. So he gave us this toy called Tickle Hands. <laughs> it was a set of vibrating furry red rubber gloves that was being made off the heels of Tickle H- Me Elmo. Tickle yeah. Me? Tickle, mm-hmm. Tickle Me, me. Yeah. And we wrote a crazy song for that, and then all of a sudden we were getting calls to go on the show. That was in two thousand eight, and after that we were like, "Wow, we had been writing jingles as well at the time because we like nerdy music, and we found that like we find this like love for not only like custom music, but music that was putting silly lyrics where pop songs should go, and oh, that yeah. was. The most fun ever, not only because it removed the constraints of writing pop music, but also because like it felt like it had a place, especially doing, you know, jingles, not so much because they are to sell a product. But like what doing kids music It's like, oh, well, you have like a place in this world. And yeah. that's so nice um, oh, because you feel like you're doing it for a reason.
0: I know what you mean by but- you know when I was doing jingles I i felt for a while after doing them for about seven years and part of a staff group it felt like I'm selling stuff I've never used and I'm just like why am i doing this it wouldn't i know exactly what you mean yeah about
2: you know what I don't know if you felt like this but I was like I'm doing jingles for American dolls somebody gonna send me a doll like when are they going to send me the doll <laughs> or like if, you know, you're doing go fish crackers, like is somebody going to send me or actually I did a Mercedes and a Mercedes commercial and a Lexus commercial. And my, everybody I knew was like, do you get one? I am like <laughs> I don't know if you know the way that they value this. Like, of course, they love the singers, but like nobody's get, you know, no. nobody's getting a Mercedes off of this.
0: And you can, can get really silly about it. I remember one time we were doing a, a jingle for a, a funeral home. And at the end of it, you know, one of us would be the voiceover person. And we'd tag it with something. And and so after we did that, one of our singers in the group said, hey, one more, one more. Okay. And then he got up to the mic and he went, da-da-da, funeral home. We'll be the last to let you down. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, that's, that's awesome.
2: slogan. It really <laughs> is. So then anyway, so JP and I, like, we, we were working on all this stuff. And finally, having two separate companies, we were like, all right. We're together romantically. And you know, it's more of like an it's it's almost an ego thing where you're like, oh, okay, if we do this, there's no going back from this, right? I've got this <laughs> partnership. But it, it's been so worth it because not only have we gotten to do all this great music together, but we still collaborate with other people. We collaborate oh. with PT Walkley, who's done Blues, Clues, and You and uh, Gabby's Dollhouse. He's just an amazing composer. Wow. And and Alana Daffinseco, who we've done Princess Power on Netflix with. So we still get to collaborate with other people, but like we get to have this very efficient music house where we pass things back and forth with one another and, and put out a great product that we can both review before it goes out. Yeah. And the the last thing that's so great about our company, uh, another thing rather, is that we get to bring in new um, talent. So we have a lot of people that have come to work for us that are younger and, and starting their own careers out. And so sometimes we have them on the underscore part of our company. Oh, cool. Uh, they're, they're yeah, been,
1: some yeah real- it's been it's like a passion, a passion project of mine is given back to young c- composers, especially because I remember when we were first coming up, there were some mentors along the way. But maybe more for cat than than for me everybody that i would meet that was doing something in the industry it was almost like they were gatekeepers in some sort of way where it was like oh yeah man just you know use your ears and you you know and i didn't want that and even when we went to school it seemed to be kind of a diy kind of industry so yeah. as we grew as a company i wanted to hire young kids out of school, first as an internship. And then, of course, the ones that after a while showed real promise, we just hired and and they've been fantastic. And we really want to be the mentor for them that we didn't have.
0: Yeah, I, I wish to God I had had some more mentoring, you know, in my earlier career, because I made a lot of mistakes. And cost myself a whole lot. So I think the industry is kind of oddly moving towards more of a community feeling because there's no norm anymore. It's like, well, so it's never been done. Okay, well, cool. That's unique then. Let me try that. You know, my goal for what I do is mentoring other people so they don't have to make the mistakes I did. Yeah. And And then, you know, the cool thing is it makes us more valuable in the world. If we're part of the flow of creators that we help along the way. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think
2: I was going to say that when we were going to school was the very, very beginning. It was like the early 2000s of like people having home recording studios. And so you could only really make good music if you had paid for the. Singers to sing your stuff paid for the session players. There wasn't as many great instruments, synths, and virtual instruments that there are. And because of the fact that it's more affordable, there's way more content, right? Mm -hmm. And also streaming the streaming platforms, there's so much more content. So there's so much more stuff to be sung on. But conversely, there's so little money for each of these projects that it seems that we are all. Of course, we're all going to do the things that we're passionate about, regardless of the money. Like, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'll do it, yes, I'll do it. because we love it, like you said earlier. So we 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 want to make the content. There's a lot more content. So it's, of course, it's like we find that like there's going to be projects for everyone. So you might as well foster that collaboration that we didn't really have so much in the past. Mm. Not to mention the millennial mentality, which is like you got to get to the top and you have to do everything it takes. But it's, it's changing in, in a really nice way.
0: Yeah. And back to what you were talking about with the studio situation, the gear situation. I mean, I never wanted to be an engineer. I just wanted to do what I did. But, yeah. you, you know, after the pandemic, we are during the pandemic. We all were kind of on a need to know basis and needed to know a little bit more than we did before. Mm-hmm. But back when I first put my first vocal coaching product together, which was a six CD, if you remember those. thing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> called power path and performance. To do that thing cost $13,000 because I kept wanting to get it right, I kept wanting to redo it. So I did it in the studio so it would be top quality. Well, now I can do it here for free. <laughs> yeah.
2: And so, and uh, a recording a setup for, you know, a beginning producer will cost $200 for that tiny keyboard, $150 for the USB or the I think it's still USB, a condenser mic and $200 for a cheap computer. So, you know, $1,000 and you are good. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. Or less. The first thing I heard about that, that really made me understand the power of the home studio. Alanis yeah. Morissette. It was, yeah. yeah, it was Alanis Morissette. And I remember I was working with a, a pop artist and she wanted to write all this wordy stuff and wanted me to co-write with her. And I, I said, Stephanie, Could we maybe take half of the words out? And she said, "Have you ever heard of Alanis Morissette?" No. Well, she gave me that album, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Mm. (laughs) Then we get Taylor Swift. So there are no rules. The only rules are: do people respond to it? Does it get through? You know? Yeah. And and then that's art plus a little mathematics in as far as getting the studio thing right, but. It's an art, not a science, but there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. And I think creators need to be able to f- sort of ascertain whether this is really good and nobody knows about it or this is really bad. And that's why nobody knows about it. Mm. Right. Mm. That that's is a, hard. A, <laughs> a, that, yeah.
1: I mean, <laughs> with the amount of content that's out there, you know, Gotta not all great. is good. You know, it still takes a lot of talent to break through for sure, and you know, I, I think it should always be somebody's heart that comes across rather than trying to beat some algorithm,
0: right? And then, and I think it, you, pro- you guys probably agree that an artist today needs to be an expert not only in their craft but also in the business of music, right? They have to mm-hmm. learn the contemporary, what's working now, as opposed to yesterday, which could have been literally yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that part
2: is wild. And it's so <laughs> exciting. But, but you're right, like, you could be writing about something and then the next day, like, I don't know, we moved on from that. We're we're here. Yeah. That being said, especially in the jingle world, the the references are usually like the same five references that have been <laughs> for the past 20 years.
1: <laughs> shake it off. We want to shake it off. Yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah. I, don't care.
0: yeah I, I even it. heard get jiggy with
1: it. Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys do this? Because I, I do, and, and I, I bet you do too. When I am writing, it's very important for me to know who exactly I'm talking to, the one heart that I'm talking to, so I can know how I want them to respond. And that colors not only what I write, but how I would sing that if I sang it.
2: We've been having conversations about this over the past two days, actually. Yeah. Writing for preschool series. Oh, yeah. Sometimes, you know, we write a lot of lyrics and and a lot of times we'll put this lyric in or especially during the creative process. For me, my creative process is that I have to write all the bad, not bad ideas. I have to write all the unusable ideas. So there'll be things in my lyrics that are downright lewd because I have to get them out of my head. Yeah. And so I'll be like, haha, that's funny. <laughs> anyway, next thing, next thing, next thing. And then, you know, once you get those, like, I don't know, imps of the mind out, then you're writing.
0: But, but you open the bottleneck of like, let's not edit anything until
2: until yeah. we have stuff. Yeah. it's. I think that's what spitballing is. But like when you're doing it with yourself, it's just funny because <laughs> you literally get to say these things that are wild. But anyway, each time we write a, a joke or a, something that's supposed to be comedy, we say, okay, you know, my four-year-old, my three-year-old, my one-year-old who's watching this, not mine, but like the four-year-old or three-year-old that's watching this, are they going to know that's funny? Are they going to know the meme? Especially like when you're subverting comedy or you're subverting like idioms or things like that. Like if you write salt of the earth, they don't know what that means. I barely know what that means because it was before my time. And so the comedy has to be like, will a five-year-old Will a three to five-year-old understand this? And that's a big deal. And that also goes for music because if you're quoting something that already exists, are you quoting something that will be funny or, or relate or be emotional for them? And the other thing that we were talking about is for our more serious, especially with Sesame Street, for our more serious productions, when your listener is listening to something that's about something very serious like divorce or gun violence or the pandemic are they, are you lyrically, they wouldn't understand if you wrote about that. And also like, it's too emotional, I think, for a child to be able to absorb something. If you're saying something like there's a bad disease, that's going to, that might kill everybody. You know, you can't say that. So what you have to do is you have to tap into production, in instrumentation, in the, the mix, in all of the instrumental part. You have to Tap into and and deliver them this empathetic emotion. That's why you're put putting this song out here. I understand your feelings, and I'm going to write about them, but I I can't do it lyrically.
0: you have to channel a little Mr. Rogers, don't you?
2: Yeah, Oh, oh yeah.
1: my favorite so much. my favorite of all time.
2: There's a series that we work on right now that reminds both of us of Mr. Rogers a lot. It's tab time on YouTube kids. <laughs> Abbott the Brown who's a fantastic personality and internet celebrity of her own right. And she's all over target right now. She's such an amazing person. And she really does have that like Mr. Rogers spirit and the music that we wrote for her show, because she's so in tune with kids and emotions is very much like that. Like there are episodes for her about loss and uh, JP, what was that episode that you were scoring the other day?
1: Yeah, it's, it's going to be coming out. So it's ultimately about death and the death of a loved one, but in such a beautiful way where one of the character's best friends, which is a sunflower, the sunflower dies. So it, you know, it, it's not as heavy as a parent or grandparent, but it's just as emotional, you know, Great if you have process. a young child and they pick a flower and then the next day they notice that the flower is dead, they're going to be sad, but if you read through the lines it's really about death of a loved one and remembering all the good things and within the episode Tabitha talks about the loss of her own mom and how when she feels that you know she wants to remember she puts her hand to her heart and you know, just remembers all the good things. So it's it, it's a really beautiful show that I don't think a lot of people know about. But it, Kat and I are both really, really proud to have worked on it. We did all the songs and the scoring. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful show. And it has the heart of Mr. Rogers' neighborhood.
2: And they bring like major celebrities into it, too. They brought Terry Crews was one of the people, right, Jay? Mm-hmm. and who are the some of the other people i can't
1: think. cynthia arrivo it oh yes. was so good oh my goodness i think tay diggs was there i don't know it's a great show so anybody even if you don't have young kids you should check it out it is on youtube originals you can google it and tabitha brown is just a, a beautiful soul the
0: show people. is called again
1: tab time
0: tab time okay well you wanna... guys have worked on like Extensive body of work so far: Nickelodeon, Fisher Price, Barbie, P- PBS Kids, Cinemax, Mattel, Kids' Bop, HBO, My Little Pony, Disney, Hasbro, Warner uh, Music Group, Play School, and NBC Universal. I just would probably have a shorter list of stuff that you didn't do. So <laughs> <laughs> one one thing that I'm I'm so amazed uh, you won an Emmy for an outstanding original song. Friends with the Penguin, again, for Sesame Street. Uh, tell us about creating that song, which, of course, now I can't get out of my head.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Billy Porter is one of my other favorite singers. Billy Porter and Cynthia, we were probably on my top 10, oh, along with course, Freddie Mercury and all the other greats. So I've loved him for a very long time. When we got this song this goes for all celebrity songs because another thing about kids music is you really have to be right. You can't be inauthentic when it comes to like making something for someone that if you know their work, you know, or as a parent who's listening to the song, if you know his work, you better do it right. Yeah. Um, And also so that when they sing it, they sing it with conviction instead of, I don't really know anybody who hasn't put their heart into it, but I know it happens. So when we got this song in we were like oh my god this is like my dream right and this is another one of those songs that are lyrically very simple to the point where you're like this is a song about being friends what is this but what it really is in the video billy was dressed in his met gala gown and it's really a song that's like hey kid if you see a kid Who's not like you at all? Maybe they are, you know, just pe- somebody that's completely not like you. How do you connect with them? Well, all you have to do is say hi. And that song, that message has come up so many times, which is great in Sesame Street. And they're just saying like, Hey, all you have to do literally is say hi and ask them if they want to play. And so Sesame Street did this so well with. Friends with the penguin. So when those two things came together, I was like, we need to do this right. So I wrote in a way that I knew he would want to sing it. I know as a singer, when you write me, you know, a melody that like I want to sink my teeth into, like I'm going for it. Yeah. You know, whereas if you write something that's not really for me, it, it will not, it will be night and day. Of course, he wrote Love is on the way. I mean, he sang it. Sorry, sang that song and he, well, Oh, and we wrote a, a high note for him that he just. Oh my <laughs> yeah. God, he did so well. He did so 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 well. And Leslie Carrera Rudolph, who plays Abby, was in the session with him in the recording session with him, and she's like in uh, recording the video part of it. But he had. She said to me, he went to his studio and he took the time to like record it right. And when he sang it, and we when we heard it, we're like, this is absolutely perfect. <laughs> and so I'm so glad that, you know.
0: Well, we'll I'm be obsessed. linking to that video in the uh, podcast notes. So be sure and look for that. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, you know, my husband and I have been doing music together for decades as well. We met in a cover band and then he was playing the drums for the jingle company that I was singing for. So we have a similar kind of Background with this, and you have to carve out family time. Do you do this? Do you carve out family time where nobody's allowed to mention music?
1: <laughs> you know, yes. And it, it's so funny that you say that because it's more cat than me. But we have our studios down here. We're in the basement of our home, and I know this isn't a visual podcast, but cat oh, will and- be. Yeah, it'll be on YouTube. Oh. Mm -hmm. Kat's in her room and I'm in my room. We are about 20 or 30 feet away from each other, but we do not work in the same room because we, we value our marriage, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know? But yeah, there's been many times, especially with juggling life and the kids when we go upstairs. And if I have to tell Kat something about, you know a project that's coming in or i have this idea for changing a bridge or something there's been many times she's like no no i'm that part of my brain is is shut off right now and for my sanity it it has to be a no music zone you know part of our process is we're co-writers on the music and it used to be where then I would go and just produce, and then she'd sing. But now Cat's producing her own, and she's killing it. She's getting, she's getting quite good. She, you know. <laughs> but sometimes I'll be like, "Oh my god, hey Cat, so can you just go down real quick and just re-sing that part?" And she's like, "No, it's uh, it's after <laughs> hours, and I just have to have my time." And and I respect that. I really do. We need
2: separation of church and state.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. It's not from one
2: another. It's just like I'm a very social person, and working from home is not my ideal work situation. And so to be able to do it, I need to feel like I'm going somewhere. And I'm so grateful now that the past two places we've lived that we get to go downstairs to do it because there was, when I very first started out, Yeah. yeah, I was in my bedroom and that was a terrible, weirdly, very negative mental space to be in and i know it's just like it shouldn't be but it it just it just oh it is
0: yeah and plus i do think creatives need a well-rounded not only life but friend pool like i want yeah. friends that have nothing to do with music that yeah. i can celebrate what they're doing with them because it gets us out of kind of a blinder sort of look at life i th- i think it's like travel you know it in- it enriches your life and it enriches the music we always bring the music with us we're who we are who we are but my husband and I, I know when it gets to be seven o'clock, if I'm not away from this computer, he comes in and oh, and I pokes me in do. the back.
1: Yeah. I love that. Well, yeah, you know, but- it, it's funny. Cara Diaguardi, some people call it Diaguardia, but there's no A there. But anyway, I met her once. And I remember this was when I still had my publishing deal with Denise Rich. And we were at some event and I met her and her advice to me. Was live a lot? That's all she said. <laughs> live a lot, and and it's like going back to what you were saying about traveling and getting different perspectives. That's how you write good music. You can't yes. write it in a bubble. No.
0: You just can't. No. Yeah, right, exactly. And I think it's mentally helpful, especially, and if you've got kids, you know, you have to. I remember we we would be driving, and maybe I'd be doing a vocal warm up before a performance or something like that when my son was young. Or I'd be singing, I'd be, you know, trying to rehearse a song or something like that in the car and he would go, mommy, can you stop singing? (laughs) And it really, it was because it was stealing from his time. My attention was not on him. And, you know,
1: do you and your husband work well together in the same room when you're collaborating?
0: Well, most of the time, of course, I'm in the singing booth and he's in the studio in the drum booth. He, He got a, he got a rotator cuff injury. He can't play anymore. Oh, start, God. He's really retired. Oh. But we did one last album before it was all said and done. And it was in 2015, I think it was. And we, for the first time, you know, he was on the road with me as my drummer when I was an artist. He he and I did the jingle thing together. We were in the cover band together where we met. So we'd been making music together in performance and, and studio stuff for a long, long time. We'd never really written together. So we, for the mm-hmm. first time, wrote together. And we wrote this album, except for one that I co-wrote with uh, another a New York uh, girl, Cassandra Kubinski. But the rest of them are things that John and I wrote. And it's like one of my most fulfilling albums. We chose not to promote it because I've already been on the bus and I don't want to do that, you know. But mm-hmm. we made our hearts happy with it. And we had a lot of really great response from the industry in Nashville the reviews and the showcases and stuff like that. We had a great response. We didn't push it, but dang, one of the songs ended up in the expanse. You know, you just never know where these, and one of the other songs that Cassandra and I wrote are going to end up in this musical that I'm working on. Yeah, So it's, you never know when you do excellent work. Let me talk to you guys about how you feel about these two words, excellence versus perfection. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie, you should talk about that.
1: (laughs) You know, that's a really interesting kind of conundrum because excellence is what we all strive for as artists, but perfection can really cloud that. And sometimes imperfections is what makes music, oh my gosh, and it really takes a lot of discipline to know when you're being a perfectionist and when you need to just just chill. And actually recently Kat and I have had to have some discussions because sometimes we'll get in tunnel vision. We'll just be like, okay, I really want this lyric to work, but it's not going to work in the overall scheme of the project. And you kind of got to be like, okay, let's do what's best for the song. And we'll save this lyric or this part of the song for something else. So I, I think that it's a constant kind of practice to be mindful when you're being a perfectionist. Because I think perfection is what kills art.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I like to speak on it too, because deadlines are something that are really helpful for yeah. the two of us. I don't know about you. It has to be done. <laughs> yeah, deadlines are wonderful. Because we've, we have projects like Jingles that take 24 hours. I did one two days ago where it was the morning of the guy gave me a track and he said it needs to be written and sung by the end of the day. And I also had to sing all my vocals for a baby sharks, big show song that was also due that day. And, you know, it's one of the most like exciting things because like flying by the seat of your pants means that only the most, not obvious, cause that's a terrible way to say it the first idea that comes to your head has to be the one that works. And those songs like are a certain way. And sometimes they're great. Whereas if you don't have a deadline, you have to be done whenever you want, you know that like, I don't know, there was a Guns N' Roses album that took like five years, right? Was it the last?
1: Five, no Chinese democracy that took, I think it was a legendary 10, 15 years. uh, And it was very similar Prince was was notorious for that as well, where he would just make records and then be like, oh, they're not good enough and put it in a vault. And who knows? I mean, maybe it's the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I'm a huge Guns N' Roses fan. And when Chinese Democracy finally came out, there was one or two good songs, but I didn't think it was some epic, you know, Iliad. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I,
2: yeah. do- I think perfection, I don't look for that anymore because I know that, Things can be, be made better, but sitting with them for too long for me just makes it worse. So one way is JP's way. And I I, I can't remember that way, but I'll tell you my way. <laughs> is to sleep on it. My way is to sleep on it. And fortunately for a lot of the projects for TV shows, you get a week. Mm-hmm. And so in my day one, and I'll put it in with other projects, of course, because you can't spend a full week on a song. But the day before we start working on it, we will go. And me personally, my best way to do this is to read the brief and sleep on it. So I read the brief at like 1130 at night and I sleep on it. Usually there's some sort of idea that happens in the middle of the night. But if not, then the morning of, you know, you write what is most important to you or what comes to you first. You write that, whether it's the track or the chords or, you know, you set the piano and you do the whole thing or the lyrics. A lot of times for me, it's lyrics. And then... Day three and four is putting everything all together. And day five, you don't have any more time. Like that is done. You are done. And and that's like deadlines and sleeping on it. Sleeping on it, you'll say, you know, between Tuesday and Wednesday, you'll say, oh, that doesn't work. I'm not remembering this song. Like if I can't remember it, it doesn't work for a preschool song. It has to be super, super catchy. Yeah. But I think the way that JP he used to do it is sometimes you would throw away songs, which is not great. But... You will just say, like, can I sing it? If I can't sing it, it doesn't work for a pre- Like, I think that's your your way of getting excellence in songs. And I think you, we check each other, too. Like, mm-hmm. this isn't working. And I think that's another good way of avoiding... Per- I think perfection is toxic.
0: Yeah, and the, the, the truth is, yeah, it can actually stop the creative process or create fear with it. You know, the reality of, of the subject is there are tons of hit songs that nobody would have ever... Guest would have been hit songs. And there are tons of songs in people's catalogs that are better than anything on the radio, but they just haven't found their, their day in the sun, you know? So the only thing we, we can't make it succeed. I think the only thing we can do is make it, make us feel something, us, the creators first, and then imagine in our imaginary head, imagine it making whoever we're talking to get the response that we want that and realizing that these days people's ears are used to things being tuned but mm-hmm. I don't know about you I'm hearing way too much tuning on
1: way okay. too this much oh my God and you know I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus but <laughs> there are some projects especially in the movie where they're getting people who really can sing and they're still tuning. Ah. And it's ah. terrible. It's terrible.
2: That being I'm sorry,
1: that, it's just like, and people can be like, well, it's just we're used to hearing that. No, sorry. You don't need it. You don't need it. That I, 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 that I would love, a lot of, go ahead. Sorry. I would love for there to be a movement of the anti auto tune where like sure people is. just go back to, oh, yeah. You know,
2: Most of my first, career, there wasn't such a thing, you know? <laughs> yeah, a bunch of the new music is, is starting to to a- be anti-tuning because it, obviously you're going to go through this. Holy shit, look at this plugin. This plugin will do this for you. And you don't have to like cut whatever. I don't know what I think they used to cut the tape. You don't have to cut the tape. slow. Yes, no, speed do. it up, slow it down. You don't have to do that. Cool. Let's use it all the time. Let's make it an effect. Like every, every nuance does this, right? Sounds let's- like a machine. Let's sample every single song there ever was that's you know during that time let's you know let's let's do the like anti-chorus and we'll do a drop instead of a uh, every and you know you everything goes through this one oh let's do remakes right that's another one it's gonna it goes so it's i think it's at the end of its use with the exception of like very 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 like quick turnaround stuff i think kids mm-hmm. music unfortunately is part of that but
1: I don't tune you music. I don't, I, on the stuff that don't we say, you know, because I'll I usually still be the absolute last person to touch it. I'll do the mixing.
2: I have a, so. I have an admission for you because of what I know that like our peers do. And it's not nothing against that, but it's just like a sound. I tune my vocals. I tune it
1: for a Well, f- shoot. I Cheater. Tune it, I Cheater. Tune it, I don't know. Hear me out. Shame. I'm on, I'm Shame. On I'm kidding. I'm,
2: kidding. I'm, on, I'm on pitch, but I tune <laughs> my vocals for... I tune my vocals at the people who are listening to this who know autotune. I tune my vocals at about sixty, which is to me, it's I call it like it's not shimmer. Shimmer's shim, shimmer's like thirty five, but it's for what do you call that? Like it's it allows me to be a little bit further back into the track. It doesn't mm-hmm. make everything I sing like pop out as much, and that's important in kids' music. There's a there's a name for each of the, you know the speeds. I'll call it. But anyway, going back to my point is. A lot of the pop music that is that is out now, like take Billie Eilish, who's just a gigantic superstar right now. She's got music that she tunes at, you know, 30, which is a very, very sparkly when she wants to be sparkly. And then when she does Taylor Swift too, like when she doesn't, you'll hear the like quarter tones in her voice yeah. because she's yeah. using it for and Jacob Collier, who is like a gigantic, like mega musical genius does it with his own voice, he'll put his voice out of tune to make the listener a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and you do it on purpose. And and you know, he'll like put his harmonies up a quarter tone too, like just to hear that sound and make you feel something that's so subtle you don't know what it is. Oh, yeah. And it's really nice. I like people oh, wait, that people
1: wait, are you saying that my voice, I can make somebody feel something oh my God. I feel it in my bone. You know
2: You're the best screaming goat guy there ever was. The screaming goat guy. I mean, if the screaming goat meme could like, if there, if somebody was going to be hired to do screaming goat, like for a project, it would be you, Jay.
0: You know yes. what's so funny? My husband's the same way. The only thing he can tune is timpani, but he knows when I'm the slightest bit out of tune, he knows it, but he yeah. can't do it. The way I feel about tuning is... It's genre specific. It's song specific, and it's also time specific. So you use logic and you use the tools instead of let the tools use you instead of depending on them too much. I never was tuned. Most of my career, most of my decades of, of vocal stuff was because you know editing required blood. And you're right the, with the razor mm-hmm. thing, cutting tape. But now the commercial ear is so used to things being pretty, pretty perfect, not. Absolutely perfect because that takes the human out of it. But what I like to do is just tune where if you didn't tune, it would distract. Yeah, it would feel like it was a demo or you know something not quite right. It would distract from the message, which is the main reason for the song. you know, this thing in our neck is to deliver messages. Mm-hmm. So if the tuning is necessary and, and if I have to turn something around really quick, you know, right, just touch it a little bit here. that way I don't have to sing that part again or sing that part again, because I want to, I can do it with my own gear here. I can take the time to do it, but you know, it's a tool. It's just a tool. And we, I think you're so right, Kat, it's just a tool. And if you absolutely go up and you, and you say, I'm never going to tune my voice. Well, you're shooting yourself in the foot a little bit There's some great artists that are really kind of sucky. Tuning-wise, if they're not tuned live in performance, their pitch is is really bad.
1: I've heard them, yeah.
0: But yeah, yeah, and I'd rather hear that than hear them tuned artificially live. But nevertheless, they can get by with it live because there's the energy of live, but they can't get by with it in the studio because it's distracting to the ear because they're not seeing the visual but you guys are like-minded spirit with me on these things. Let's hit on what we were talking about before we hit red. And that is what singers that you work with and you are required to know how to do when you're in the session. Like read charts. And and you were talking about how you come to Nashville to do some things too. Mm-hmm. And you got exposed to the Nashville number system, right? Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. I know people in other cities. Look down on the number system because it's like, well, it's just people that can't read music. Well, no, it's a shortcut that, and, and it's a shortcut that you can use the same chart and transpose and just look at the same chart, you know, too. Plus you can do it on the spur of the moment and you can write the numbers as chords or you can write the numbers of the melody, right? Mm-hmm. So Kat, talk about that, how you've discovered the. Numbers, system.
1: National
2: numbers. Oh my God. When I first started doing demos for artists, I mean, singing demos for songwriters, the very first time I started before I created my shorthand, I had spent five hours and I was absolutely like, my brain was mush. And I physically felt like there have been times when, you know, at the end where like, we have to take a break. I can't be here anymore or else I will like, literally I'm a fainter. And I thought that I would faint And so I said, I have to like fix this. I need to be able to learn this song quicker because also the other thing is that like, I had a couple of clients who who would change their melodies each time. So I'm like, I need to write this down to, so I know exactly. And I could be like, no, that was not the melody that you wanted, you know? So, and this was when I was in studio with the songwriter live. This doesn't happen anymore at all. And so I would, (laughs) what I thought was my own system. I was like, oh, okay, here's, The one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, or if it's you know minor three, I would you know put the flat whatever, and I and I would write the number of the scale. And I was like, this is cool. I would also put a forward slash through things that were anticipated, and I would put a dot over things that were you know just because I knew mostly how to read music at the time. So a dot over things that needed to be emphasized, and because you would get lyric sheets, right? And that's all you would get. You wouldn't get. If you're um, lucky you got lyric sheets. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was working with this songwriter from Nashville on a song. He's like, You know those in Nashville numbers. And I was like, What? And he's like, Those are that's how they do it in Nashville. They write the number of the scale. They write their rhythms. Like if it's on the downbeat, you put it right before the word. And if it's off the, you know, if part of the word is anticipated or or like, you know, split push, bars I was called. Yeah. Push beat. Yeah. 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 Then you would just, you know, do that. And I was like, this is amazing. And so it went down from Having to read it through, listen through five times, which is 15 minutes of wasted time, to not only being able to know the song and be able to like make sure you have the right note, but also to not have a five hour session. You're right, you're having a three hour session or less. You know, of course, as you like have better relationships and sometimes more experienced songwriters that are writing your songs. I could do this in two seconds, and you know what? As the songwriter, like working with Stirk and Rogers, or or who's our buddy JP that we saw at the parade, Sam Hollander. Sam Hollander wrote some songs. Some songs that I sang. Listen to those. You you hear it and you know it, and so I know as a songwriter now that. I'd much rather someone sing my song remotely because they can get it to me quicker and I can work on other things. And I'm sure they wanted that too. So I was a high demand demo singer for so long because I knew those numbers. It was amazing. I noticed that these days when you have to be live, especially recording like voice talent, which is now all over via Zoom and via Source Connect since the pandemic, I noticed that we can work you know so much more, especially as a vocal coach, and uh, being able to like vote coach my talent. That they they really have their sh- stuff together. Like they know the song, they know their melodies. Th- these are just like s- very incredibly seasoned, talented performers. Like I coach Kamiko Glenn, who plays Baby Shark, and um, Darren Chris, who is from many things, including American Horror Story they just know their stuff. And yeah. they're also as, as singers, you know, when I first started, I was like, well, I'm not writing a melody, you know, I'm not going to, and they're like, Hey, how about this? It's just like, that's part of the gig now they, they just like, they, they add so much and it's nice to work with actors too, because they have the emotional complexity. Right,
0: right. They've got the focus too on, they know they're supposed to be talking to somebody mm-hmm. instead of just singing a song. It's mm-hmm. a, yeah. It's a whole different level of performance. Yeah, I
2: found that there's three distinct types of singers. There's recording singers, which they're very intimate, which are, you know, the people who are doing demos for people, whatever. And then there's actors who are also recorders. But singing actors are their own thing because they have all that, like, I can speak to someone, but on a very intimate level. And then Broadway singers who are, I will give you the grand version of this emotion.
0: It's very important for a singer to know what language they need to be in too, is it? Mm-hmm. And a great thing to do is for a singer to learn it all, to learn when to change languages.
2: I don't think I can do that. I know there are <laughs> people who can, but I know if I learned, if I sang Broadway style all the time, I would have a hard time being intimate.
0: I don't know. I think <laughs> you're right. I think it's harder for a formally trained singer to drill down to, well, it's the difference between theater and film. Yeah. Yeah. Like with film, Meryl Streep could raise an eyebrow and it can mean everything. Where in theater, they, nobody would see that.
2: Yeah. Yes. <clears throat> uh, Billy Holiday was the first person to talk about it. And she said that she liked to be very close to the mic because she said, I want to be in your ear. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I want to be... I don't know if she said a fly in your ear, but she said, I want to be like, I can whisper to you because yeah. she was so used to be performing here. And when you're in a microphone, like it's a whole different, right. a whole different amazing, volume.
0: amazing. That's it for part one of my interview. If you enjoyed it, don't miss part two up next.